Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest is Roxy Shi. Roxy is a Taiwanese-American producer and director who was recently nominated for Best Directing at the Daytime Emmys for her work on Dark Web. Her latest indie feature, List of a Lifetime, with Kelly Hu and Shannon Doherty, was acquired by Lifetime and served as their centerpiece film for Breast Cancer Awareness Month this past October. This year, Roxy also directed the entire series of Facebook's watches, Mira Mira, a smash hit seen by over 60 million viewers. Other popular projects from Roxy include The Tribe, Hulu's Painkillers, and two episodes of Zach Bagan's The Haunted Museum, which is a new series produced by Eli Roth. A big champion of her community, Roxy co-founded the Taiwanese American Film Festival in Los Angeles and previously served as the festival director for two years. She currently hosts a podcast called Two Horny Goats, where she and her co-host Priska dismantle Asian-American stereotypes by tackling difficult subject matters on a weekly basis. Roxy, I'm so excited to have you here today. You made it through the bio, yay! <laughs> I made it through the bio. A round of applause for Bob. <laughs> she's got about a 42-page bio because she's that <laughs> accredited. No. And it's amazing. I just feel so bad. I'm like, oh, you're going to read the whole thing. Like staring into your soul as you're like, your hand's shaking as you're reading like, the paper in front of you. <laughs> there are so many big words and more than two syllables. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just a little kid from the country. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> big words, big words. I saw you sweating. <laughs> I love it. Well, Roxy, I had the privilege of seeing List of a Lifetime, and that is a movie that is not normally in your genre. Right. It's my first sort of dramatic feature film that deals with sort of these female stories regarding the topic of breast cancer. I usually like to kill people <laughs> in my work, so the bloodier the better. So I was known mostly for my genre work before I started doing this. And how did you get this opportunity? And I know that you shared on stage, because I was at the premiere, uh -huh. you shared that you really had wanted to work with Kelly. And this was sort of like a dream come true. So how did you get this gig? And what was it like working with Kelly? You know, it's kind of crazy because I think that with anything, we become pigeonholed into certain like spaces where people can identify us the best. Like for me, it's genre films. With Kelly, she's a sex icon, you know, like representing an Asian sex icon for so long in the industry. I grew up watching her. So it was like, such a dream come true as you saw me still geek out over the fact that we're now friends that we hang out and all of that but 
I first got the project because I've worked with Ninth House a lot, who is a production company, and we make some films for Lifetime, mostly thrillers in that space. But the producer, Autumn Federici, basically had an interest in diving into more important subject matter. And so she gave me this script that was AAPI-led, so Asian American Pacific Islander-led for the cast, and it was written that way. And I was really burnt out from a series of jobs that I was doing, and I didn't really feel compelled to do it. But when I read it, within the first 15 pages, I was so moved by this conflict that Brenda, the lead character, was dealing with. And it resonated so hard with sort of this like immigrant growing up in a foster situation, feeling alienated and alone. Like there's so many connections that we can make to that as human beings. And then especially with the added layer of her giving up her daughter. And so it's a very female story. It's a very, like a lot of women will sort of understand this grief, especially the mother-daughter arc is something that I've longed to explore more of in my work. So it just presented this very seductive opportunity for me to also explore my own voice in this space. And then uh, Kelly was definitely like my top choice to play Brenda because also, like you said, I like dismantling stereotypes and I don't want people to see me as a stereotype. I don't want people to see us as a stereotype. I don't want them to see Kelly as a stereotype. She's stunning and gorgeous, yes, but also she has said to me time and time again that she never gets offered roles like these. And why? You know, she was phenomenal in it. So for her to explore this expansively into this space, I think it was really rewarding for all of us to be given an opportunity to show that we also have all these other stories and characters inside us all. That's so great. And, you know, it's funny, as I was watching it, and of course, I didn't realize until I got to the event that it was about breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So I realized, oh, this is not going to probably be a comedy. (laughs) But I was, I found myself getting mad at Kelly because I'm like, don't make that choice. Yeah. Okay, wait, this is a movie, right? And, you know, I don't think there was much of a dry eye by the end of the film Mm -hmm. in the room. I think people were really impacted. Yeah. There was so much conflict. There was all those different pieces, like you mentioned, the layers of adoption, immigrant, Mm -hmm. not advocating for herself. And it was just such a great story. And so, job well done. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, there's like another aspect of, Something I'm feeling very drawn to is the coming of age of an older woman. And I feel like this isn't seen a lot in our TV shows or movies. And for Brenda's character, she felt like she was disappearing. And a lot of women in their mid-40s and later on feel like they don't get seen or validated anymore. Like my mother, she would always say, oh, I'm too old. I'm too old as an excuse or a reason for why she can't pursue what she wants or she can't grow or evolve. So I hope that this movie shines a light on the fact that our coming of age is always coming. Yeah. It's never ending. Our growth as people, as humans in this existence, we could continue to expand if only we allow ourselves to. Yeah. And there are some comedic elements in the movie. Don't lie. There are, for sure. <laughs> there For sure, there are. There are. It's a great show. Thank you. But speaking to stereotypes, especially Asian American stereotypes, so it would seem that people would ask you, are you good at math? Mm-hmm. And why are you going into creative arts? Oh, my gosh. Right? Yes. Did you get that? Did you get pushback? You know, Roxy, you should be doing math things. Well, let's just start by saying that, you know, I'm an immigrant to this country. So I was born in the Netherlands and then uh, my parents are Taiwanese. And then I moved to the United States with them when I was seven years old. Then we got naturalized and became citizens. 
and I'm an only child. So this is just to paint you a picture of what the expectations are for my existence. And as we grew up, we followed the American dream. My parents wanted the best for me. I wanted to be that A student. I was in very competitive Asian communities where it was about achieving as hard as you can, as best as you can. You know, it's all reported in the report cards and your extracurriculars, et cetera, et cetera. And I just never was that person. I could never be that person. And I didn't get into, you know, the best school that they wanted. And my parents were like, and this is with the most love. I love them a lot. But they said to me, you're our biggest investment. Wow. Yeah. And so. (laughs) Not heavy. (laughs) Not heavy. And to this day, I'm like, well, I've never made you your return of investment. I'm still in a way like there's still so much return left. And I became a filmmaker. I did everything unconventionally. I never got a master's degree. I never did what they thought would lead to the paths of so-called success, right? But that's like recalibrating what success means to you, whether it's financially or whether it's like for your own spiritual purpose or emotional purpose, right? So then I think I got a lot of pushback because I never went to film school. You know, I did everything the hard way. I carried, you know, coffee as a PA. I learned on set. I'm a visual learner. I'm a hands-on learner. And this is where I excelled. So it's not my nose in the books as much as I love reading, but it's just was if I can't apply it, I can't learn. So then I started to make my way up. I became a producer. So I knew that I was good at putting people together. I knew I was good at finding the main point of a project, excavating it, and also refining it with the people that I was working with. I really like collaboration. This is all stuff that I like. But being a director was just a pipe dream. Like being a creative as an Asian American woman was impossible. Like I came up before the inclusion conversation started happening. I came up before the women conversation was happening. At the time when I wanted to be a director or I was budding, it was like 2% of directors were working women, you know? Wow. It was all these statistics stacked against me. And I have to say, like my family, a lot of what they said impacted me, you know, and they moved back to Taiwan when I was 18. They're looking at the United States Economic Foundation through that lens, but it's not through me. I'm actually living here. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm trying to navigate it the best way I can in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And freelancing, this is all just really terrible. (laughs) This is like the worst way to build up your finances. But I was like chasing after this crazy dream because I just thought there's something about it that I know that I'm really good at. And so people have told me my first movie was The Tribe. And my own community has said to me, why isn't it Asian American? B, shouldn't you be doing romantic comedies? And shouldn't you be doing documentaries because you're a woman? What the f***? Right. And let me ask you this. With that stereotype that you were dealing with being Asian, Mm -hmm. but also being a woman, you were an only child. So there may have been some unconscious disappointment that they didn't have a boy because that is a stereotypical piece. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. My father, one day when I was back in Taiwan, I was in college and I flew back to go see them and he put like a big bottle of whiskey between us. It's not that he regrets not having a son, but he's just like, you are my son. You know, it's like insinuated that way. He's like, you're going to drink all of this with me and you're not going to pass out. (laughs) It's like, I tried to be sporty. I tried to do all of these things to appease both of their expectations. And there is that shame, you know, of like, maybe I can't be all these things. And also the layered expectations of what a woman can contribute to society, both in Asia and both in the States was a conflict many times. So I find myself being a different person depending on where I was. 
But all in all, I think the biggest detriment that I had was my people pleasing because growing up Asian, and this is Brenda's character as well, she couldn't find her voice. Right. And we're afraid to speak up and we are complicit in our silence. And with all the stop Asian hate that happened earlier this year, was it this? Yeah, earlier this year. It was just our parents would say, let's not make waves. There's no need to like speak up about it. So for me, being in this position now, creating the work that I'm doing, having a voice, having a seat at the table in the rooms where producers are having these conversations, it allows me more of a platform to be able to fight for the silence that we allowed ourselves to be sort of cornered into for all these generations in American history. And what would you say to women of color underrepresented people out there who haven't found their voice or don't think their voice matters in this creative world, what would you say to those folks? Because a lot of people will say, don't follow your passion, especially if you're going to go into entertainment. It's just a dead end. Yeah. So many people can't succeed in this. It's so crazy because I think with that, we're always constantly seeking outside validation. We're always looking for someone to say, you matter, you're seen, your story matters. I grew up for the longest time thinking no one would care about my stories. That's why I went into genre because I'm like, I could just make believe with other people's stories. But I realized that none of it really hits unless I start applying my own experiences and putting in what I truly know. And the thing is that every experience you have is a tool in your tool belt. Your experience in your life, in your body, in this existence only belongs to you. And that makes it unique. So I don't know about you, Bob, because I'm really curious to what you think about this in terms of people's like career climbing sort of expectations. But for me, you know, if someone's just like, hey, I'm in my 30s or 40s, I'm doing a complete like career shift, right? And I think that's great because there's no one in your engineering sort of space that has done like this marketing arts. I think it provides a very unique perspective and it's all about how you use it to empower what different strengths you could contribute to something that's probably very like a monolith. Yeah. So that's how I see it. I don't know. What do you think? I absolutely think that one should follow their passion. Yeah. If I'm not having fun, for me, a measure is, am I having fun? Am I enjoying this? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm just drudgingly showing up and having to go through the motions, it's not feeding my soul. And at the end of the day, if I'm not getting emotionally fed, spiritually fed, what's the point? And even in the movie, Brenda, at a certain point was, I've shared my information, I can just go die. Yeah. And didn't see a reason for finding her voice and discovering that it actually did matter. Mm -hmm. And I think there are so many people out there that give up, that don't have hope. And so the more people out there following their passion, speaking their voice, knowing that their story matters, even if somebody else says, well, that's trivial, it still matters. And that hope can model for other people to stay the course and show up and speak up and step up. And I think that's what's happening with the great resignation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And are you finding that for people that don't know, there's just been a mass exodus of people saying, this isn't good for me and I'm not going to work these many hours at this kind of pay unless I'm valued, unless I'm appreciated and unless I'm compensated. Mm -hmm. And I think that the pandemic has really given people an opportunity to really reflect on what's important. We were forced to shut down and sit with ourselves very uncomfortably for a very long time. 
I love that because it's almost like things are getting turned over at a crazy rate. And there's like revolutions happening in every little corner that we see. Like the film industry is going through a major turnover right now with the IATSE strikes happening, with producers being held accountable for unethical practices and corporate company culture being called out as well, you know, for toxic environments where I think the ones who are surviving in that sort of corporate culture are ones who are listening to their workers and making changes as needed. So it's like, yes, the pandemic was shitty, but also look at what's happening and it's happening at a crazy pace. Yeah. And I think it's so important, you know, as you're saying that I'm reminded some of my employees in the past have told me I've ruined it for them when they go work other places because I really try to welcome their opinions and I really welcome their feedback. It doesn't mean they always get their way. Yeah. I think for so long I was focused on, no, it's my way and I know everything and which is a humbling thing to realize, actually, I don't know much. (laughs) And for me to be able to welcome in in a safe space without making them wrong or bad, it's much more valuable because they're much more invested in the success of the company when they actually feel valued. Because you make them feel like they have a seat at the table. Right. Like they're allowed to talk at the table and they're not just banished with like a little toy chair, like in the kid's corner. That's so important. And, you know, for me, for so long, I didn't feel like I had a voice. And I'm aware that I'm also a white male. I (laughs) get some inherent privileges. But for me, internally, my personal journey, I didn't feel like I had a seat at the table. And I think for many of us, go make your own table and invite a bunch of people to sit at it, right? Oh, 100%. Yes. (laughs) We don't just sit at that table. Let's make a couple more tables. Let's have a bunch of tables. I love that. I love that. It's like opportunity doesn't knock, build a door, right? (laughs) That's right. I mean, we have to be proactive and it's not always easy and it may involve asking for support or asking for help. And sometimes there's embarrassment in that. And there's so much power and reward in stepping up, reaching out, getting the support and being heard and having a seat at the table. Yes, 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 yes. So that's all very exciting as things change. Yeah. And what is your experience now as you're starting to get there? I mean, it's the middle of a pandemic, right? Being a creative person and working job to job, it's not stable. I love this question. Let's talk about it. Because (laughs) I think when the pandemic happened, everything stopped, right? Especially the film industry. And a lot of my friends are panicking over the fact that we can't shoot. We can't do whatever. Things slow down. I, on the other hand, got very lucky. I probably got the most opportunities I've ever had during the pandemic. And I was able to navigate sort of these different scenarios. I shot in Utah. I went to Toronto. I did a lot of different TV shows and different series. I did, you know, Mirror Mirror was done during the pandemic, Haunted Museum pandemic, List of a Lifetime was done during the pandemic. So I was pretty busy. However, I came back and everything just sort of stopped. And I used to have this lack mentality when it came to my money. Like I'm always fighting paycheck to paycheck. And I realized during the pandemic that I have a very, um, this relationship with money is very dangerous with me because I made the most I've ever had. And I looked at my bank account and for some reason, I don't feel like it's mine. So for example, I would hit 15,000, 20,000, whatever, you just keep going, right? And then somehow if I spend money and I spend beneath my threshold, like my new goal poster, I feel like I have to go scramble for to make more money in order to hit that goal post again. 
And I was talking to my mom about it and she's like, you know, should go buy a new car, should go do this. And I go, no, I can't, I can't, I can't because then it will go beneath this. And then she's like, well, how much money do you need to make for you to feel secure? And because I freelanced my entire life, I have that sort of survival mentality. And I just said, I don't think there's ever going to be a number. You could put a million dollars in my bank account and I still feel like I need to make more. Yeah, that's even for myself. I really hear you. And I talk about this a lot about we have a comfort level, whether it's not overdrawn, whether it's $1,000, whether it's 10,000. And then when it starts to go below that, we get uncomfortable. And when it goes above that, we often clear it out Yes, and get back to that comfort level, right? What is that? Oh, it's 15. Wait, I have 20? Wipe out 5,000. Yeah, what is that? What is that? <laughs> it's what's comforting. It's comforting to us. And even myself, I really love that you talk about this because when I'm at my threshold, then it has to stay there. Yes. And I come from a scarcity mindset. I grew up in a family with not a lot of money and a big family. So I've got to have six months worth of food in the pantry. And so if my threshold dips, even if that number is 50,000, I'm freaking out. Yeah, same. And then I increase it. If I happen to make more money, then my threshold continues to change. But my anxiety with money continues to remain the same. Yeah. And I think that's what people don't fully understand is that even if we have lots of money, we may still have the emotional mindset attached from the scarcity. Yes. So how do we have an abundant mindset instead? So that's a great question. How do we come to abundance? And for me, it started with gratitude, starting to say, wait a minute, I have running water Mm -hmm. because I travel a lot and I see what other people don't have that I take for granted. Mm -hmm. And having a hot shower every day, having a car that gets me to work, even if I'm stuck in traffic, all these things I started to shift and say, wait a minute, that's a story that I have that I don't have enough. Mm. Because I do, I can get into the story of like, I don't have this and that. And then I actually look on paper and I'm like, shut up, you whiny baby. Uh, (laughs) Have a little gratitude. It's actually going pretty well. You know, there were times when it didn't go so well and things were really stressful. But it's not the case now. And so I keep checking in my story. I keep checking it out. Is this true or is it a story? And the more I can let the story go and start to then just really appreciate, again, that gratitude piece for me is so important. And I can still laugh now when the mindset comes in. It's not enough. It's not enough. You can't spend 50 bucks. Oh, silly boy. Yeah. (laughs) Go play somewhere else. That story doesn't work here. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think what you're talking about is recalibrating the way you approach money, right? That's right. You got to reframe it. You got to reframe it. And so because, you know, I would get a job and they'll pay me X amount, right? And then I go for months and months and months at a time not working, you know, on a film. I'm like developing or writing scripts and I'm not getting paid for that, right? So I'm a Capricorn. So for those of you who don't know, Capricorns are known to be voraciously hardworking and ladder climbers in terms of their career. So in the meantime, I also discovered that I'm really, really good at, I'm also a psychic. So I do tarot readings Ah. on the side. So I schedule maybe two to three tarot readings a day and I charge, it's a hundred an hour for like a reading. And at first I was so afraid of charging that much because I wasn't sure of my value. Right. And then I realized like once I up my price, because inflation is happening at like a really rapid pace right now, and you have to match competitive rates with other people. I realized that those who are willing to spend the money and respect my time and my craft are always willing to pay the fee. And I actually didn't lack 
in the amount of appointments that I get, it's still matched like what I had before, you know? So I think even just a couple of days ago, I was like, oh man, like I've been spending a lot recently and I don't know how I'm going to make it back. And then I don't know, it's the universe or something, but literally the next day I got like 10 new requests, you know, like <laughs> to schedule something to put in the books. And, and then I get these random requests to like teach workshops and stuff. And I have to say that I do wish for a little bit more consistency because I am the type of person that really likes to know what's coming. But with the pandemic and with the way that these past two years have gone, I think we need to be a little bit more mindful about what we can practically do and then just put our intentions in the present as much as we can. Because I think we have so much anxiety about the future that we forget what we can do in the now to invest in that as well. Yeah, there's two things that I really heard that feel so important in this. It's one is trusting your value. Yes. Because everybody else can tell us that we're worthless or we're whatever. But if we don't trust our value, if we don't believe in it, it's hard to sell other people on that if we're doubting. Do you think that, I think human beings being human beings, they still need some sort of external validation? Like, is it possible to self-motivate to the point where you think you don't need that? I do. I think it is great to hear it from other people. Mm -hmm. And I think internally, we can cultivate our self-worth and our value and not need everybody else to affirm it. Mm -hmm. It can be reaffirmed. And I think initially we have to do the affirming. Not that it's easy. I struggled when I first charging rates and I'm like, the people paid that? Yeah. <laughs> what? And for me, it was because like in accounting, it came so easy. I felt guilty because I thought you had to work really hard. And it had to be painful. And so how can I charge for something that's an easy thing for me? And so that is a piece that I think we all have to just keep working on. And the other thing that you said, I think that is so important is we're all worried about the future mm -hmm. and learning to trust that the present moment is enough. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow's not promised, right? right? Tomorrow is not promised. And if we can trust that I've done everything I can do for today. I've showed up fully today. I've given my voice today. Mm -hmm. I'm saving my money and I'm not going crazy today. Trusting that the universe is going to keep providing abundance. It's going to keep showing up for you. And for me, when we can actually trust that we don't need, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We can't change the future. We can't change the past. We can be in the moment. And so I just think it's so important and I struggle with this sometimes of living in the moment. Sometimes I'm, wait, no, no, no. What about three weeks from now? Yeah. No, just like right now, right now. I hear you because like this moment was like the past is future too. Right. So it's like, I don't want to go too woo-woo on things, you know, because I know that a lot of our reality is because of our practical reality and material things. For sure. But at the same time, it starts with you, right? And how you see things and give value to things and how you see yourself works. Because, you know, my father's an incredible man. He's Taiwanese. He moved to the Netherlands, like when he turned 30 with my mom. And he had to learn how to speak Dutch and like get people to respect him and speak English and learn English. He came to the United States and worked for a little bit, but he always had this charisma about him. He calls himself a dorky nerd, but he's so amiable. People love him. And I remembered when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in college. And my father said, he's like, Roxy, when you find what it is that you want to do, I want you to talk as if you're already that person. Ah. And I said, that's lying. And that's like pretending and acting. He's like, no, 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 it's not. He's like, you have to be that person. Even if you don't believe in it, you have to talk like you're that person. And that was like the most insightful advice 
I've ever gotten. And I still remember it to this day. And I was like, dad, you know about the law of attraction before you even put a term to it. And that has really served me. Yeah, I think that is so important. Amy Cuddy, there's a great TED Talk with Amy Cuddy. And she talks about, you know, people will say, fake it till you make it, right? You could say that I'm this, I'm this. And she actually said, you know, you fake it till you become it. You actually, until it integrates. And so it isn't lying to yourself. It's actually envisioning and allowing it because if the universe can see it, if you can see it, then it can actually come to fruition. Bob, do you still think that hard work pays off or do you think there's like working smarter is a better payoff? I think working smarter. Hard work does not always equate to payoff. Mm -hmm. I know people that work hard in the industry. I know people that work hard in other industries and they do everything. They follow all the rules and they don't get rewarded. I think just hard work in and of itself doesn't always serve us because sometimes we can be running on a hamster wheel very hard and we haven't moved an inch. Right. And what does it mean to work smarter, like in the most general sense? So a lot of us, for people that work a 40-hour week, Mm -hmm. they make sure they fill up 40 hours. Oh, I got to put in my eight hours. Right. Instead of saying, you know what? I was super effective with five hours. I'm going to take these three hours and go relax. Mm -hmm. And so actually learning, and I struggle with this sometimes too, because I'm a workaholic and have to do 800 things at the same time. But I sometimes don't always slow down, even though I know I've already done everything I needed to do for the day. Now I'm just surfing the internet. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Just go ahead and say, I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm going to go, I've done the task at hand and now I'm going to go and relax. I'm going to go have a connection with somebody. I'm going to go take a weekend trip. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reward myself because the whole point of being alive is to actually enjoy living. Yeah. (laughs) And so- If we can nurture and affirm those places where it's not just about putting in the time, it's about being effective. Right. And I think that's like the shifting narrative in terms of like this time that we're living in. Yes. Because like what we were taught, I'm not sure what you were taught growing up, but it's like work, 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 and you'll be rewarded later in your retirement. And I'm like, by the time I'm retired, I don't know how much money I'll have or like how physically capable I am to enjoy life itself, you know? Absolutely. It's interesting. I saw a little statistic, very wealthy people think that it's all done through hard work and saving, but most of them (laughs) inherited a very large amount of money. And the rest of us, yeah, there's work to be put in, but it can be more effective. And it could be something as simple as putting away 50 bucks a week or starting to put money into an IRA when we're 18. Yeah. And even though money doesn't mean anything, I've got several child actor clients who, oh, I don't care about money, but the parents certainly care about the money. (laughs) And trying to tell a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old that you need to save for the future, like you're making a lot of money now, let's bank it so you can do what you want later. It's hard for some people to do that. No, let's spend it, especially with social media and everything. Got to have it now. Learning that delayed gratification and learning to actually advocate for yourself in the short term and the long term in terms of your finances is so important. That's something I really need to practice as well. I get really trigger happy. I have over like 35 houseplants that I just bought over the course of like two months. So just maintaining them and not killing them and all of that. (laughs) Exactly. They need lots of... Good advice, Bob. Thank you. (laughs) Lots of water. Lots of water. Yeah, lots of water. Well, we are at our Fast Five, which is brought to you by Podmatch, a service that matches ideal podcast guests and hosts for interviews. And... I now have five questions for you. Okay, let's go. All right. Would you consider yourself a spender or a saver? Spender. (laughs) (laughs) Even though you won't buy the new car. (laughs) I did buy the new car. It's a convertible. (laughs) Oh, sweet. All right. We'll talk. We'll talk. 
<laughs> How would you say working in a creative industry impacts your relationship with money? It's really difficult. I have a fluctuating relationship with money, but I'm learning to nurture it a little bit more as I get older. Yeah. What's your financial superpower? Uh, oh, shit. This is a really hard one. <laughs> Do I have a financial superpower? I always know when a great deal is. I'm really good at bargaining for deals. Awesome. I could get really good deals. That's it. That's good. Okay, great. Okay, good. Good, good, good. That's good. good. That's a good superpower. Okay. If you were given an unlimited budget on your next film, what's the first thing you would splurge on? My fee. Let's <laughs> go. <laughs> It's not a helicopter, huh? It's not a helicopter. No, my fee. Your fee. Roxy. <laughs> I, I, I want it. a private jet. There you go. That's it. <laughs> what do you want your money to do for you that it isn't doing yet? I want passive income. I think that's the one that I'm trying to figure out what would work the best for me right now. All right. Yeah. A duplex. Buy a duplex. <laughs> But then I have to like maintain it and I have to flip it and I have to, ugh, everything's so much work. And it- <laughs> I just want to be a lazy person. I just want to sleep all day and water my plants. Okay. All yeah. right. Mutual <laughs> funds. Mutual funds. That's passive income. But mutual funds. Yes. I have some mutual funds. All right. There you go. I should get more. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So get more. You're on the path. Thank you. You're on the path. Well, let me ask you this. We're at our M&M moment, our money and motivation sweet spot. Do you have a practical tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that you could share with our listeners, especially the creative folks out there? I would just say as your paychecks continue to change, really evaluate your weekly budget. I think that budgeting is still a very important tool for me. As I get more socials, as things start opening up, I realize that my monthly budget is very different from what I've been spending in my 2020 and 2021 years. So just be very mindful of that. That is always a really good tool, no matter how far you get in your financial journey, I think. Absolutely. Budgeting is so important. You know, the number that I use for people, I just say, look, take 35% of your money. That's for taxes. Put it away. And then whatever's left, 50% is for what you need. And then the rest is for savings and wants and all that stuff. So try and live off of 65% of your money because 35% goes to taxes. Live off of 50% of that 65%. And then you'll have money when it gets really lean and tight. Private jet. Private jet. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason for it. I just want one. <laughs> Private jets are a good thing. They're good. I mean, they're a lot of upkeep. That's more than a duplex, I will just say. Yeah, that's probably really good advice. I should listen to that. <laughs> It might be cheaper to just rent a private jet every once in a while. That's actually true. It's like the same reason for why I would want a horse. Yeah. I'm never going to ride the horse, but I would just upkeep it. You can just rent one for the weekend and put it in your backyard. You go, that's my horse. That's That's my horse. Of course. (laughs) Thank you. I was like, wow, my own financial consultant and financial, you know, just sort of advice like in this podcast that everyone is going to hear. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So we all know she's going to have a horse and a jet soon. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But they will both be rented. <laughs> I'm manifesting that. Thank you. <laughs> and there's no shame in renting. Uh, <laughs> yes, no shame. No shame. Well, Roxy, here's what I loved about this conversation because we covered so many things. I love that you didn't let anybody put out your light, right? You had this creative spark. You had this idea of what you wanted, even if you weren't completely sure, mm-hmm. but you had a sense of what it wasn't. And even though your parents, even though there may have been cultural pressure to do all these different things, you really stuck to your guns and held true to yourself. And I think that's so important. And even with your parents 
having this big investment in you. They might have thought you were an IRA and you turned out to be, you know, a 401k, um, <laughs> right? But there's also no blame. Like, I'm not hearing, oh, my parents were evil. No, you even said, no, no. The, with such love, yeah. you said, I love them so much. And they just had a different expectation. Exactly. Or a different set of goals that didn't always line up. And so I really love that there's not this baggage of, oh my God, oh my God. And even knowing that you were a people pleaser and even knowing that these were parts of you that you're not making that bad. You're just saying that was part of my experience. Exactly. And it's so important for people to find out who they really are. You know, you don't have to do it and it's not always easy, but the rewards are so amazing when you actually find your voice, you step up and have a voice and actually show up in a way that's full of gratitude and abundance. And we can, we maybe can't have everything, but we can't have it all. Yes, yes, yes. I agree. Oh, that's so good. Oh, welcome to Bob <laughs> Wheeler's TED Talk. <laughs> exactly. That'll be it for now, ladies and gentlemen, and they thems. <laughs> Absolutely. Roxy, where can people find you online and in social media? You can follow me on Instagram at Roxy. She is just my full name, no space. And you could DM me if you have any questions. We are also on Instagram at Two Horny Goats. Just spell it out, Two Horny Goats. On Twitter, it's Roxy She 88 And I think that's it. RoxyShe.com if you want to find more stuff about me. Thank you. And besides List of a Lifetime, mm -hmm. what other movies do you have coming out? People should check this stuff out. She's an amazing director. Uh -huh. You got to see List of a Lifetime on Lifetime channel. It'll make you cry. But what else are you doing? So I have two episodes on The Haunted Museum. One of them has already released on Discovery Plus, And then one is releasing on November 6th on the Haunted Museum on Discovery Plus. So those are my two big things right now. And then I'm working on developing more fun stuff for the future. And if you need an amazing director to hire, reach out to her. Please hire me. Yeah, because I want to <laughs> grow my threshold. And she needs a private jet. Yes. <laughs> need it. No, I need, need it. The important word, need there. Roxy, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me. I had so much fun as well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Ba-da-ba-da-ba -ba -da -ba.